This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. this Thanksgiving week, I thought we would journey back through the year and revisit some of the many conversations for which I have been thankful. Back in February, I had the chance to speak to one of the country's most amazing women, the, at that time, a 94-year-old Ms. Opal Lee of Fort Worth, Texas, who has been campaigning to have Juneteenth recognised as a national holiday for pretty much her whole life. My introduction to Opal came through her grandson, actor Richard Harris, who you might have seen on the Columbia Entertainment stage earlier this year in the one-man show Satchmo at the Waldorf. Richard very kindly offered to introduce me to his famous granny, and Ms. Opal told me about her life, how she became an educator, and her memories of Juneteenth, particularly June the 19th, 1939, and what happened to her family on that night? Well, my parents had bought a house at the corner of Annie and New York Street in Fort Worth. And my mom had it fixed up so nice. Little two bedroom with the living room and the kitchen and all that good stuff. But on the 19th of June, people began to gather. And we didn't know what was happening, except it turned out that they didn't want us in the neighborhood. And so the realtor that sold the house went to get my dad who was at work and dad came with a gun and the police who were there, the paper says they were 500 strong. But those police told my dad that if he busted a cap, they'd let that mob have us. Well, my parents sent us to friends on Terrell Avenue and under cover of darkness, they left the house. Those people tore it asunder. They burned furniture. They did such mean and despicable things. And I thought, gee, if they'd just given us a chance, we would have shown them that we could be good neighbors. My parents never talked to us about it. They worked and worked and bought another house. Uh, I'm not sure how that affected me, except I know that Juneteenth is a unifier. I know that if we can celebrate Juneteenth from the 19th to the 4th of July, that would be freedom. So I keep telling people, I keep walking, I keep talking, that if we would unify, if we would work together, that we could accomplish so much more and do away with the disparities that exist now. So talking about your walking, back in 2016, you walked to D.C. from your home in Fort Worth to petition the government about recognising Juneteenth as a holiday. What inspired you to walk rather than, I don't know, take a car or a plane? Well, 
I got to thinking about it, and I just thought I was pretty close to 90 then. And I said, I don't need to sit here and walk and wait for the Lord to come get me. He's going to really have to catch me. And there's some stuff I need to do before I go. And so I gathered some people, my pastor at my church and the musicians at my church and my county commissioner and a school board member. And we had a little ceremony and they sent me off on my walking tour. Two and a half miles I walked that afternoon to symbolize that the enslaved didn't know they were free for two and a half years. So the next morning I got up and started where I left off. I walked past Dallas, Texas. I did over 150 miles doing two and a half miles each time until my team said, no, that's not the way it's going to be because someone had offered us an RV so I wouldn't have to go to the motels or go back home or something. But they reneged. They decided what I was doing was too political, please. Well, my team said I'd only go where there were Juneteenth celebrations, uh, where I was invited. And do you know I was invited all over these United States? And so I was still doing that two and a half mile walk. I got to Washington, D.C., January 10th. 2017, and we had asked President Obama to walk with us from the Frederick Douglass House to the Capitol, but he was in Chicago. That didn't happen, but I haven't given up. I just know that there's so many things that I learned a long time ago that you just have to keep at it. I don't care what the obstacles are. You gotta keep at it. So I'm wanting a million five hundred thousand signatures to take to Congress this February. Miss Opal, I want to ask you about your role as a lifelong educator. You have a Bachelor of Arts degree, a master's in counseling and guidance. Tell us where that passion for education started. Well, I'd have to start with my grandparents, my mother's father and mother. My mother was the fifth of 19 children. My grandmother had three sets of twins, bless her heart. I always thought she was a saint. She was tall and regal-like. My grandfather was short and jolly. You'd have thought next to St. Nick's he came first. Oh, he was a delight. But he had a work ethic that those 19 children couldn't get past and he drilled it into them. Had 40 acres in one place and 40 acres in another and he couldn't hire hands, so they grew them. And I had uncles, one in particular, who said he was going to get as far away from that farm as he could get in Texarkana, Arkansas, and he left home And he got to Little Rock. And that's where he made a living. That wasn't very far. But my mom, my grandfather would offer each child land and a horse or so when they decided they were leaving home. But my mother thanked him 
and said, no, thank you. She didn't want that life. And she had been in school in Marshall, Texas. And that's where she met my dad. And really, that's an exciting story because my grandparents had to go pick her up from school because she got ill in Marshall. And my dad followed them to ask my grandpa if uh, he could marry her. My grandpa is mischievous. And he said to him, are you sure you want this sicken? As if he had some others that he could do. <laughs> well, my dad, <laughs> before he left, my mom told him she'd marry him if he would build her the house. She drew it for him on a slip of paper that she had seen at Tuskegee Institute when she went for a 4-H club outing. And my father left. She didn't hear from him for two years. When he came back, he told her he had built that house. And so they were married in the dog run. Now you gotta know what a dog run is. There's a house and on either with a roof, and on either side of the rooms, and here's this opening, no doors, pigs, chickens, anybody can get in and out. And it was called the dog run. Well, and Marshall. My father had a job at Fryhard's Drugstore, and they had an ideal life about 12 years. The Depression, my father came to Fort Worth to find work, and he was going to send for his family, but he never got around to it. So my mom sold whatever possession she had, only cow, and she caught a train with three of us. I had two brothers. We came to Fort Worth on Saturday. And on Sunday, she was working in somebody's kitchen already. Well, my father found out we were in Fort Worth. Okay. And of course, that's another life. Finishing high school at 16, getting married. And my mom was so disappointed because I would have been the first grandchild to go to college. And it took me four years and four babies to find out I was going to have to raise a husband too. You know, men don't seem to mature as fast as women. So I cut my losses, tears meeting under my chin, took my kids and went home to my mom and had nerve enough to say to her, I'm ready to go to college now. And she said, I've got no money to send you to nobody's college. But she said, I'll keep your children. And I worked, I don't know how many jobs to get that money to go to school in the fall. And took the money and spent it on a television so the kids, my mom wouldn't have to run all over the neighborhood looking for them. I went to Wiley College, it's Wiley University now, without a dime. And they put me to work in the bookstore. I got through in three and a half years and um, teaching position. They paid $2,000 a year, so I had another. You couldn't feed kids off of $2,000 a year. So 
I had a ride to school. I'd clock in at eight. I'd clock out at three. There'd be a car waiting for me. I'd clock in at four. And out at 12 at Convair, where they made the big planes and whatever. I guess I'd still be doing that, but I got laid off. (laughs) And Miss Opal Lee did it. She took her one and a half million plus signatures to D.C. after we talked. And on June the 17th this year, President Joe Biden signed Bill S. 475, the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act into law. Theatres started to open up again earlier this year, albeit with much reduced capacities. But Greenhouse Theatre Project opted to produce a fully outdoor season of work. And back in the sweltering heat of June, the company's founder, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, donned a fighter pilot uniform and performed the one-woman play Grounded, directed by Ragtech founder and film producer David Wilson. It was a 75-minute rush of adrenaline performed with intense precision by Elizabeth, whose professionalism and ability to stay in character even survived a sudden thunderous downpour the night I was there, which meant stopping the show, moving everything and the audience into an adjacent warehouse and then resuming 30 minutes later. If I were giving out awards, Elizabeth's portrayal of the pilot would be my Tony-winning performance of the year. Here's our chat from June, right before the show opened. So the thrust of the story is an ace fighter pilot is sidelined by pregnancy and forced to switch her F-16 for a windowless trailer outside Las Vegas and become a military drone operator, swapping the big sky for, as she calls it, the chair force, and hunting terrorists half the world away for 12-hour shifts, after which she goes home to her husband and child and has to immediately transform from hunter to nurturer. You are a mother, Elizabeth. Can you describe your visceral reaction to the circumstances your character finds herself in? Yeah, well, I obviously, the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth time I read the play, had an immediate connection to it. I I felt like uh, you know, I'm not a pilot. I'm not a big um, risk taker when it comes to daredevil activity and stuff like that. But I am an actor. And to a lot of people, that is a pretty big risk <laughs> and takes a certain amount of courage and ego and bravery and all that. And so um, I understood her and I understood a part of who she was and what that blue, what that sky truly means to her. And then kind of juxtapositioning that with uh, home life, with family, with being a mother, with being a wife, and and that balance, that balance between doing what you love and being an incredibly passionate person in doing what you love, but then at the same time having to come down to reality and uh, doing the day-to-day, you know, making dinner, um, folding laundry, and being present in your home life and not wishing that you were somewhere else, whether it's in the clouds or you know on stage or whatever. So yeah, definitely connected on many levels with the pilot. Do you like her? I love her. <laughs> she's a lot of, um, <laughs> she's, she's a lot of who I wish I was. She has uh, this honesty and she knows what she's talking about. She's absolutely certain 
all the time up to a certain point when she becomes confused. But I think that, uh, that certainty that, that, uh, being able to follow through a hundred percent, you know, part of that is her training and part of that is just built into her. And I think that that is, yeah, I covet that because there are times that I wish that I could be as direct and, um, forward and honest as her. David, intense theater, is Elizabeth's playground. So talk to me about your role in shaping her performance. I came to this project because I'm a fan of Liz and her work. And, you know, when she asked me if I would help out, it was a kind of a no brainer for me. Um, in this case, I guess with this play, I feel like I'm, I'm a conductor. Everyone is bringing a kind of expertise to the table. Liz with her performance, Chelsea Myers with her video work, Tim Pilcher with his audio work. And, and my role really is just to kind of make sure all the levels are right and everything is working harmoniously with each other. I'm curious, Elizabeth, George Brandt is a male playwright. And at its core, this is a play about the female body, motherhood and the female psyche. You are also a playwright who loves delving into the psyche. Talk to me about how accurate this woman feels to you, if you maybe would have written her a little differently. Mm, that's an interesting question. Yeah, you know, it's it's been kind of perplexing to me uh, through this journey that, first of all, that this was written by a man who chose to write about a female pilot. Um, he dedicates the play to his wife, who she herself is a total awesome chick in her own way. She's a, <laughs> she runs a theater. I was going to use a different word, but I corrected myself. Um she runs a, a, a theater company. She's also a playwright, director. And I think that she actually was a lot of his inspiration. I, I think, though, you got to up the stakes. And uh, the stakes are definitely raised when instead of going into a theater every day and kind of putting out the fires that go on within the walls of that situation, it's, it's a little bit more intense to take it to a battlefield. You know what I mean? Um, we all kind of have our own battlefields, whatever that is, in our own lives, in our own worlds. But I just, uh, I really, I think it's, I think it's fascinating that he went in this direction. Playwrights are so, <laughs> they're so weird, you know, because they, you get obsessed with something. Basically, is what's happening, right? Like any any storyteller, you just become obsessed with whatever the subject matter is that you're you're working on at the time. And I'm sure that George Brandt, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I know that he is not a pilot and did not grow up in that world, in that military world. And so I'm sure him delving into this, uh, I'm sure it just took him over in a way. And and the character formed herself through that. (laughs) David, I think of you primarily as a film director. So I'm curious if in your mind, as you're directing this theatrical production, you are also seeing it play out as a film too. Mm, That's a good question. I think one of the things Liz and I have talked about before, and I think that film lives in close-ups a lot of the time, and theater lives in in long shots. Theater is often about reaching a broad audience or reaching, reaching the back of the hall. And film is really about those like micro moments, uh, you know, in the face. But I, I think something about this performance is that even though it's outside, it's going to feel incredibly intimate. And I think a lot of the ways that Liz's performance is kind of resonating for me right now um, is cinematic, even though it, it's almost literally the opposite, right? It's it's one person, it's a monologue, it doesn't stop. 
Um, there's no cut. And yet I think there's really something in the presentation that's going to feel cinematic about it. There is no name for the pilot. She's just called the pilot. I wondered if either of you had imagined a name for her. <laughs> this is an ongoing conversation. Um, <laughs> well, the, the funny, the very funny thing about that actually is that when I ordered my costume, essentially my pilot suit, it arrived and it had all these patches already attached to it. Some of them are Velcro, so some of them can be removed and some of them are stitched on. And uh, the in the name section, it had um, <laughs> Carol Danvers. And, uh, and it's really funny because I'm not a Marvel person. I don't, I'm not a comic book person. I'm like just totally out of that stratosphere. And so I was like, Carol Danvers. Okay, cool. Like her name's Carol Danvers. <laughs> and then everyone's like, Carol Danvers. That's like, uh, you know, from the comic book. And I was like, oh, whatever. Are you down with that, David? Um, I, she's a hundred percent not Carol Danvers. That's all I know. <laughs> Here's the deal. I'm less concerned with her actual name, and I'm actually more intrigued by what her call name is. And a call name, when you are a pilot, it's your it's your nickname. You know, it's your name that they literally call you on your headset. I mean, it's it's your name. So if you watch Top Gun, Tom Cruise's uh, call name is Maverick, and that's on his you know it's on his helmet, and his his co-pilot is Goose. You know, and they they all have these. So I'm I'm I still haven't figured out. And David and I were talking about it last night. You know, but uh, yeah, it's like, what, what is her call name? Who, who is she? So yeah, so I'm more interested in her call name than I am her actual name. <laughs> okay, answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> <laughs> An incredible mural was added to Columbia's public art collection this year when artist David Spear took a two-story building on College Avenue as his canvas and painted a giant portrait of Blind Boone and his piano. David came on the show in late June to talk about the process for wrapping this huge painting around two sides of a building. I have to start by saying, wow, this painting is such an incredible gift to the citizens of our city. A stunning visual representation of history and along with Blind Boone's home on 4th Street and his original chickering piano at the Boone History and Culture Centre, it is a dialogue opening work of art that brings history and a man back to life. So thank you so much, David. It is absolutely incredible. Really amazing. Is it your first huge mural? It's the first one of that size. Yes. And, and thank you very much. I, I appreciate the, the compliment. So was there a point when you thought, damn, what was I thinking? Oh, yeah, <laughs> probably the first day. <laughs> <laughs> so you start off with this big blank white wall, and then you've got to make that first mark somewhere. Was that a little nerve wracking? I guess my, my biggest fear was I had gridded out the entire wall started on the far back right corner and worked for a day and a half and realized that it looked like trash. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, embarrassingly, I had to paint over it white again and kind of just start over and uh, not use the grid, at least on, on that part of the mural and, and just see what looked better. So I kept walking out to the street and then walking close to the the painting. That is kind of part of, of my fascination with it is, is how you got that 
perspective. Now, I know you are king of unusual perspectives, but I mean, you have the front side of the building or the front of the building and the side of the building, and you wrap it so perfectly around those two sides. How do you do that? I mean, you think about what you say when you're looking at a painting on a canvas, you know, you step back and look at it. But I mean, you're walking 50 feet back and forward, 50 feet back and forward every time you're standing back. Talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit tricky. Um, yeah. So it's just a use of anamorphic perspective, really, like those, you know, the chalk drawings that you you see on the street on Facebook and stuff where it looks like somebody's falling into a shark's mouth or on the edge of a cliff. So I'm just kind of working with that anamorphic perspective. I mean, if you go, if we want to take the deep dive and go into the weeds, we could talk about Hans Holbein's skull and the ambassadors. I mean, the, <laughs> the first real use of strange anamorphic perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I had it kind of planned that I I did it on Photoshop and then I extended it and I thought it would work a certain way and it did to a degree, but it just doesn't, it didn't quite translate. So there was a lot of, uh, being on the edge of the street, looking at the, at the angle that I wanted people to kind of recognize it at, at that 45 degree from the, from the edge of the building. So, and I had some people that helped me. So when it came to time to do the keys, I would actually yell at them, no, raise your hand just a little bit higher, you know, and, and point. And then I'd go up and make a dot and then tell them to point again, because it was really hard around the electrical boxes. To, to figure out what was going on. Right. So you said you, you when you first started, you started on the back right hand corner. Did did you did you continue to start there? I'm thinking that you start on the corner and then kind of work out from that that front corner. But you start at the end and work back towards the corner. Yeah, it would have been nice if you were there that first day to tell me that. <laughs> so is that actually how it worked in the end by starting on the corner it, of the building? It, it did. It did. I thought I thought hey I could start with the grid from the back and just connect it to the front but y y you're right. No, I went to the corner and started okay. <laughs> with the corner. Yeah. Well done. Thank you very much. I'm going to so hire you next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very cheap. So tell me the backstory of how the work came into being. Oh, well, uh, I guess it was six years ago. I did a, a poster for the Office of Cultural Affairs with this piece that was of Blind Boone playing the piano. That piece I actually made for um, a friend of mine. It's actually hanging in Reese and Robinson Orthodontics right now. And it was just from the inspiration of, of the life of Blind Boone, who I see as just a man that overcame a lot of obstacles with a lot of faith and, and um, became like this madman on the, on the piano. And I just find his story to be really inspiring. So I did that, that painting for them and then it became a poster. And then six years later, when Trevor Robinson asked me to do a painting on his building I just kind of automatically saw it there, which doesn't happen very often. You don't see a space and go, oh, I know exactly what goes there. But it happens occasionally, and this is this was one of those occasions where it just felt like it needed to be there. 
For the past 12 years, the University of Missouri's School of New Music has welcomed a multitude of young composers to its Mizzou International Composers Festival, and I always feel like it's one of those slightly hidden gems of Columbia. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, and to be honest, it wasn't mine either until a couple of years ago, but now it's something that I really look forward to. Do I like all the music I hear? Not at all. But thanks to the festival's managing director, Jacob Gottlieb, I have learnt to listen differently to the soundscapes that these young composers create. Each summer, I get to chat with a few of the composers on the show. And this year, it was a composer called Nina Shaker, whose work really captivated me. Here is a snippet of my chat with Nina from late July. There is so much to cover in our short time together today that I scarcely know where to start. I spent hours down the rabbit hole of your music and your story, and I feel like anything short of a six-part series only would be doing you a disservice. And one of the many things that jumped out at me was that you have dual undergraduate degrees in music composition and chemical engineering. How did you end up pursuing dual degrees at such opposite ends of the education spectrum? <laughs> yes, I, well, I, to be perfectly honest, I, I didn't get much sleep <laughs> that degree. So that's probably logistically how that happened. But um, yeah, you know, a lot of that was stemming from, you know, as an Indian American, I think there's so few um I think Asian Americans in general in in the arts and and so my parents are really worried about having me pursue a career in the arts just because they hadn't seen many Indian Americans be successful in the the field of western classical music and so they were afraid for my financial security and wanted me to do a, a chemical engineering degree and so it was kind of a compromise at first but then eventually I learned to to love it, you know, and having these two really disparate interests. And, you know, I always think in terms of the way that I, I see issues nowadays, even that I try to represent in my music, I, I really feel like having that technical engineering background gives me a way to look at those issues from another angle. I always talk about like the Flint water crisis and because I grew up in Michigan and the way that artists were looking at it was more to, you know, raise funds and how to help people financially. But, you know, the way engineers were looking at it was like what was actually happening technically, you know, what was corroding all the pipes and by changing the water source. And so having that background in, in two different fields just allowed me to see it from a really holistic way. So you grew up with OCD, as you said, and, and whilst it has caused you a lot of suffering and anxiety, it also gave you an ability, a more acute ability to tap into empathy and compassion. How has your OCD shaped your music? Mm, yeah, that's definitely true. You know, I really feel that part of the power in, in neurodivergence, um, you know, and Obviously, that's such a big umbrella term and includes many different identities. But for me, it, it really gave me a way at understanding other people's experiences just because I think also part of the nature of OCD is that you overanalyze everything. <laughs> and so like I would really think hard about the way that 
I was having an impact on the people around me and vice versa. And a lot of my compulsions, to be honest, were stemmed out of a place of love, you know, a place of me wanting to protect other people because that's kind of how my OCD manifested itself. And so for me, I think even in, in my work, I really try to explore the intersection of my identity with everybody else's. And it's really important to me to really make use of that fertile ground in between me and another person and really understand their experience and maybe have them understand my experience and really have that dialogue. And so I think having but growing up with OCD has really helped me in a, in a weird way, even though it definitely caused me a lot of suffering and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I think it helped me really understand other people's experiences. You wrote a piece a few years ago called Quirkhead, which I have listened to over and over because I do not have OCD. But in listening to this piece of music, you gave me the sensory experience, the emotion of, I guess, to some degree, what you what you felt. And it gave me such a window in a way that I've never heard another piece of music give me that window into someone else's experience. Talk a little bit about Quirkhead for us. Mm, that's so kind of you to say. Yeah, that piece was, um, I think, one of the first pieces that I wrote that was really just very personal. And I think the environment of how I wrote it and the, the ensemble I, I initially wrote it for was a group called Third Angle which is based in Portland, but they were such kind people. And it was under the guise of a program led by a woman named Gabrielina Frank, who's a really wonderful composer. And it was such a kind environment. Everybody cooked food for each other, <laughs> you know, in the workshops for this piece that I felt safe enough to kind of share my experience. And um, with that piece, you know, in the beginning, it begins with the, the singer saying things like dog to the left, fish to the right, and all these funny expressions. But really what that is, is, is stemming from one of the experiences I had in middle school where a teacher of mine saw that the way I was writing words, the, like the way I see words is and letters is that I associate them with different connotations and I like left better than right. So then certain words I'll write more to the left and certain mm. words I'll write more to the right. And this teacher noticed that. And that was one of the first instances of somebody else noticing that, oh, maybe I, I might have OCD. And so in that piece, it's kind of exploring a lot of these compulsions, but also just kind of the emotional aspect of it and me wanting to protect other people and not really knowing how to do that and, and if it was true or not, like these beliefs that I was having. And it was a really vulnerable piece. And it's honestly the first piece that I really did that was exploring myself so deeply. Thank you. 
to the left, dog to the left, dog to the left, fish to the right, dog to the left, dog to the left, fish to the right, bear to the left, fish to the right, dog to the left, bear to the left, dog to the right, pig to the right, bear to the left, pig to the right, dog to the left, fish to the right, dog to the left, pig to the right, cow to the left, shark to the left, pig to the right, shark to the right, shark to the right, dog to the left. Just the beginning of a work called Quirkhead by Nina Shaker. You can hear the entire track and more of her music on SoundCloud. It's always fun when another Brit arrives in town, even though it means the Brit spotlight will have to be sliced a little finer. But I am so happy that Ragtag Film Society decided to hire Londoner Chloe Trainer as its new artistic director. She doesn't get here until the beginning of next year, but I had a chance to ask her about her expectations and her film history back in September. How are you mentally preparing for moving from a world city to a point on the map? Yeah, it's an interesting mental process of, (laughs) um, I think it's partially kind of letting go of a life that you've built in a certain in a place, in a city here in London, and also opening yourself up for the possibilities of what that new life is going to look like. I'm definitely going to miss London. I think London's an amazing place to live. There's so much going on. There's so many people to meet. You can never bump into someone that you know if you're walking around the streets for a month, um, which might sound off-putting to some people, but I personally love. (laughs) That's going to end. (laughs) Yes, yes. So it's a bit of a shift in gear in my mind, but I'm really looking forward to the kind of adventure of living somewhere that's so very different to what I'm used to. I also, I think I'm romanticising a little bit some of the kind of everyday American things. I've always been somebody that loves going to Target or kind of going to IHOP, um, (laughs) Denny's. My American friends always tease me when I say I want to go to Denny's, but I think all of that stuff is really novel to me still. And so I think that will be really exciting to me to get to do all the everyday things that just seem quite mundane to people that live there. And also, I think the job that I'm doing and will be doing there is so exciting to me that I think I could be living anywhere and still be really happy doing it. Well, my sources also tell me that one of the reasons you feel comfortable moving to the Midwest is your teenage obsession with the movie The Virgin Suicides. And I'm thinking that maybe that's not a good basis for going to live in the middle of Missouri, given that we can also boast Winter's Bone and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And of course, we always lie to strangers by tech founder David Wilson. So are there any Midwest expectations you'd like to share with me that I can either confirm or shatter? Um, Okay, (laughs) so I'm imagining lots of calling from the Virgin Suicides kind of teenage angst and frustration from the younger generation at where they live that might come out in interesting ways, hopefully not in the ways that it comes out in The Virgin Suicides, obviously, that should go without saying. I've been to Colombia for the festival, but that was obviously a very specific experience and I didn't go much outside of downtown. So I'm imagining lots of tree-lined streets that you can walk down and in sun-dappled light and kind of 
pass the time that way, just taking things in. And also, I think the main thing is I'm expecting everybody to be incredibly friendly and very open and will talk to you on the street about anything. That's the kind of vibe that I'm expecting. Is that completely off or am I (laughs) I at least warm? I think you're warm. I think people are very friendly and people do say hello on the street. Whenever we go back to England, my husband is always saying hello to people on the street and they just look at him weirdly like we don't say (laughs) hello to each other in England. Just keep walking. So there is definitely that difference. And um, Oh, sunlight dappled tree lined streets. Maybe not so much in Colombia, but we do have a very big tree. <laughs> we have a, a very famous oak tree on the outskirts of Colombia, the Burr Oak. So, you know, you could just walk around and round the Burr Oak and enjoy the dappled light coming through that tree's leaves. So there's there's that. So yeah, you're warm. That's a whole Saturday's activity right there. <laughs> So um, my sources also have told me that you are a writer and uh, tell us about the Blink 182 novel. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thank you to Stacey, my colleague there, for sharing that information. I can't reveal my sources, I'm afraid. (laughs) Um, Okay, where to begin? So when I was was 13, I wanted to be a, a writer and the way that I would express that was writing kind of these like very bad short stories and I one day listened to The Rock Show by the Blink-182 which is a great song So this song would make a great story. And so 13-year-old Chloe started writing what some may call a fan fiction about the story within the rock show, the Blink-182 song. So it's like a, it's a love story about Tom DeLonge, who is in Blink-182, and a photographer who is <laughs> on Warped Tour with him. I think this was also me projecting my kind of obsession with American culture when I was a kid. Um <laughs> Anyway, so when I was 13, I wrote this story and I hand wrote it and I still have the notebook. And like every now and again, it would come up in conversation with friends and I would reference that I had written this thing. And then during COVID in the first lockdown here in London, one of my friends texted me and said, you know, everyone is releasing their art on the internet for free to like get help people get through (laughs) lockdown. So you should release the Blink-182 story. (laughs) And I was like, I don't, I don't know about this. Like, that doesn't seem right. Um, but she talked to me around and I would have, we had weekly calls where I would read for my friend, for like three select friends, chapters from the story. Um, and there'd be a cliffhanger every time. And then we would come back and they found it hysterical because the writing was just awful. And I'm having flashes of my dad wrote a porno here. Yes, it's very much that kind of vibe. But the key, so the the modern day element of it is that I I never finished the story when I was thirteen because I'm I'm not a finisher when it comes to these things, and I got to the end of the reading for my friends and realised that I had written out a chapter plan of what would happen in the rest of the book. I suppose you could call it. And I'd had so much fun reading it to my friends that I decided that I would finish writing the book. And so there's now two parts of this book, one of which is penned by a 13-year-old and one of which is written by a 30-year-old. And I still have a couple of chapters left to go. 
But when I have finished, I feel like maybe I will release it in its entirety so that other people can enjoy the um, the monstrosity that I have created. <laughs> well, I'm glad the book launch is going to be in Columbia, Missouri. I mean, I think that's very <laughs> fitting. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can get Blink-182 into play as well. There you go. So you have a, a long history with film, but before we get to some of your adult professional experiences, let's float back in time to the University of Leeds, where you got your Bachelor of Arts degree in film studies, a city which I only found out when I was researching it was uh, where the first ever motion picture allegedly was made in 1888. So what was it that propelled you into a degree in film? Good question. Thank you. Um, I actually was originally going to study journalism because I wanted to be a film critic. Mm. I then realised that journalism wasn't the correct way to become a film critic. And I took a year out after finishing school and went travelling and worked. And so I reapplied within that year to do film. And at that point in time, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be a film critic or whether I wanted to be a filmmaker. I just knew that I was like obsessed with films. I was one of those kids who any time that I was at home, if I wasn't reading a book, then I would be watching a film. I had VHS tapes that I would watch on repeat every single day when I would get home from school. So I've seen, you know, things like The Virgin Suicides, I've seen 50 times and other kind of less art house fare as well. So things like Bring It On, which is a cheerleader teen movie like I know every single word in that film because I would watch it obsessively over and over again and I just knew that I was like in love with with cinema like as a as an art form as something that took me to places that I couldn't otherwise even imagine and put me in other people's shoes and so yeah I knew that I wanted to be involved in it in some way whether that was making my own films or appreciating other people's films and letting other people know about them and so after some conversations with my parents to explain what uh, career I would have if I went to study a degree in film I went off to Leeds and had an amazing experience there. Did you explore any filmmaker aspirations while you were there? I did, yes. The The degree that I had was half practical filmmaking and half film theory and history. And so I did make films. They were terrible, um, <laughs> which was why I am not a filmmaker today. I I produced some films, which I would argue I could probably still do. I'm very good at organising and getting things done and that side of things. But ultimately, I wanted to write and direct and I was not very good when I actually came down to doing it. Um, if my student short films ever get out on the internet, then I think I will have to disappear and change my name because <laughs> I would be mortified. Trying to organise a festival in normal times is hard enough, but organising one as a pandemic waxes and wanes adds to the stress exponentially. But two arts organisations pulled that off this year. A paired back True False Fest back in May, and then a huge no holds barred woman centered Roots and Blues Festival in September. I am so thankful to both organizations and all their staff and volunteers for staying the course and putting on two fabulous festivals which put our safety first. For many performers, it was the first time they'd been back on a major stage in 18 months. And the week before the festival, Violet Vonderhaar came on the show to talk about how she felt 
being back on stage and how she sees every gig as a sacred duty. I think the past year has changed how many of us react to situations that used to seem incredibly normal. And I saw you on stage last weekend at the Columbia Center for Urban Agriculture's Harvest Hootenanny. And I'm curious whether that felt completely normal or whether you noticed a psychological change in yourself. You know, that's um, that's a, a good questioner. Um, since we've gone back on stage, we've had a handful. Phil, Sean, and I have been playing as a duo for a couple of months now. And there's definitely been a psychological change. Um, it's, it's hard to talk about it, you know? Yeah. Um, there was a moment during lockdown where I questioned whether or not we would ever be on stage again and whether or not it was something that I even wanted to do if the world opened back up. There were moments where I, I questioned whether or not being a musician was something that was meaningful to the world, whether or not what I was offering to the world was something that the world needed. Mm. And, um, and so just being at that point, it was a real, that was a really interesting place for me to be at because I've never felt that before as a musician. I've, you know, I started singing as soon as I could speak. And so to be at a, a place where I was questioning that was really scary. And, um, and it took, it's taken a lot of time for me to get back to to my center and my knowing and um, my truth that I know that music is is powerful beyond words beyond measure and and having the opportunity to to go back on stage and to to share that to share my music with a deeper understanding and and um, and confidence that what I offer to the world is valuable. It's just, you know, it's hard to put it into words. It really is. And so um, each time I get back on stage, it's starting to feel a little bit more like home. The first show that we played was a private show to to people that we only knew so we could kind of get our feet wet a little bit again and and get used to to the feeling, you know, those vibrations and of sharing the most vulnerable parts of ourselves with with people and and connecting in in a way that we hadn't for, for 19 months. So you write so movingly about being a performer and you wrote in a social media post earlier this year about how when you sing at a show, you visualize healing washing over the listeners and and you sing prayers through your melodies and you envision the vibrations moving through each person. Talk to me about how in, in recent years, you've really come to see every gig as a sacred duty. Hmm. Yeah, it um, it was an evolution. I've always, I've always known and felt that music is, you know, a healer. And when we released the Captain, that's whenever it really became more and more clear to me how important music is for healing. And there's one song in particular, "Eyes on the Sky," that we would play, and it would, it was just transcending. You know, every time we played it, it felt like we were in a whole other world. It just and. And I started to see that effect on audience members as well, and how we all were just kind of, we were connecting at this this other level that you don't get to do in, in just, you know, regular life. Um, those frequencies were helping to, to connect us all.
But music has a way of finding those parts inside our body that are hard to to put into words or to, hard to articulate sometimes, and it has a way of kind of shaking up those those feelings and emotions and breaking them loose. And and that's you know that's one of our that's my full intention and um, reason really for saying yes to this gig for Roots and Blues because I know that there's so much that all of us are holding and if I can help to kind of loosen up some of that that trauma and all the everything that we've been you know suppressing and holding for these last two years if so our music can help to kind of shake some of that up and and release it and help heal then that's that's why we're playing the show so and that's why I play music. I'm going to end this week's show with another clip and piece of music from the same show that featured Violet. Sifa Bihomora was another of the performers at Roots and Blues, and she's someone whose career I have been following since she was a high school student at Hickman. After Hickman, she went off to Boston to study at the Berkeley School of Music, winning awards along the way for her songwriting talent and her music. And this summer, she returned to live in Columbia. I love Sifa's beautiful voice, her incredibly vibrant stage presence, and of course, her music. Here's Sifa. When this year you released a beautiful song that I absolutely love called Josh and the Piano. I listened to it over and over. Tell me about that song. That song is a near and dear song for me. I wrote it a year, a year and a half before I dropped it. When I was really going through a lot, um, I was sexually assaulted and it um it put me in like the worst space ever um and anything I could ever believe in I didn't really know how to move or how to see or how to be and then a friend of mine from high school a wonderful wonderful person just talented amazing happy always helping people always doing everything for other people passed away and it broke me. It broke me. And, and I, I kind of was questioning, you know, existence and why, why certain people live and why certain people don't and why certain things happen and certain things do. And, and that's where the song came from. Um, his name was Josh. He was an amazing singer, player, everything. And um, the song was just me singing for him, you know, singing about how, how unfair it is and how he is awesome and he always will live in everything, you know? It was just so powerful to me. The water runs deep when you left me here alone. Hard to believe you laugh so sweet.
That is it for this Thanksgiving night. It's hard to single out just a handful of conversations from a year of a multitude of fabulous chats with artists, musicians, theatre performers, filmmakers, writers, composers and singers. I'm so thankful I get to make this show for you every week. Between now and next week's show, we have Giving Tuesday – a day upon which we are all encouraged to give to nonprofit organizations to help them support, care for, nourish, educate, protect, champion, entertain, and sparkle. Giving Tuesday also kicks off a month long campaign in Colombia to give to nonprofit organizations to help them continue the work they do to make our community a better place to live. So, as you decide on your Giving Tuesday and end of year giving, Please remember KOPN, one of only a small number of community radio stations in the United States and one of only a handful in a community of our size. We have a broadcasting gem here, Mid-Missouri, and we need to protect it. So please consider becoming a member or just making a donation next Tuesday or during December because KOPN belongs to all of us. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!